I was working for a laser printer manufacturer and first summer there, I was going to visit my girlfriend, now wife, and I thought, I want to visit a customer while I'm there. And so I went to my boss and said, can you arrange for me to visit a customer? And he just looked at me and he said, why? And you know, I didn't know how to answer the question. It's a pretty basic question. I'm like, I just think that's what you do, right? When you go out and about, you go visit customers. I have since learned that that's not what most people do, but for whatever reason, that's something I wanted to do back then. Hello, my name is Lauren D'Souza, and you're listening to Retain, the Customer Retention Podcast. More and more companies are wanting to focus on retaining customers, but what exactly are the powers of customer retention? And how are companies using it to keep their customers coming back for more? That's what we're here to find out. Our guest for today's episode is customer experience expert, Jim Tincher. Jim is the founder and CEO of Heart of the Customer, a customer experience consulting firm which seeks to map out customer journeys in order to increase engagement and loyalty. As well as leading customer engagement initiatives at Best Buy, Jim was the second person in the world to receive a certified customer experience professional's designation. All of this experience led Jim to publish his most recent book, Do B2B Better, Drive Growth Through Game-Changing Customer Experience, which is considered a must-read within the industry. Jim, that's one heck of a CV. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Thanks, Lauren. Glad to be here. Well, I'm really excited for today's episode because I'm curious to know about your consulting firm, what you believe in the customer journeys. It's something that we talk about at Game Ball all the time, because as I'm sure you're going to talk about today, very much the focus on customer journey and the key data points and insights that come from that can drive some really important decisions within an organization. So I'm excited to hear about all of that today. But I want to hear more about your background first and what even led you to customer experience in the first place. Sure. My first job out of college, you know, a few years ago, I was working for a laser printer manufacturer, high resolution laser printers. And back in those days, that was a big deal. Right. And first summer there, I was going to visit my girlfriend, now wife, and I thought, I want to visit a customer while I'm there. And so I went to my boss and said, can you arrange for me to visit a customer? And he just looked at me and he said, Why? And, you know, I didn't know how to answer the question. It's a pretty basic question. I'm like, I just think that's what you do, right? When you go out and about, you go visit customers. I have since learned that that's not what most people do. But for whatever reason, that's something I wanted to do back then. And it really has defined my entire career about, to me, it's important to spend time talking to your customers, to learn from them directly. And even today, I talk with our clients almost every day. I'm always out there trying to learn more about a customer what they need. And that really is what led me into customer experience. I would have thought to visit customers as well. That'd be like my first thing to do if I go somewhere. <laughs> my boss clearly didn't. And in fact, if I jump ahead, so I worked from there to small business, went to Best Buy, again, very customer-focused firm. And at that point in my career, I just naively thought that every company was customer obsessed. That's just part of what you do. You finance, you do IT, and you talk to customers all the time. You must have been shocked. <laughs> well, yes, I went and joined a big health insurance organization. And uh, literally nobody in marketing or product development had ever met a client. And it blew me away. I was like, really? And I said, we got to spend more time talking to customers. Yeah. And the answer came back consistently is, Jim, we don't need to talk to customers. We are customers. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is the field of health savings accounts. And we're the most biased eyeball customers on the planet. <laughs> so, Lauren, I don't know if you have a health savings account. 
I do not. You do <laughs> probably, not. Okay. Probably should get one set up. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, so we would spend eight to 10 hours a day, of course, thinking about health savings accounts. Right. Our clients didn't spend that much time in a year. And so we just naturally thought they thought like we do, that they were really focused in on the product. And when I did a first satisfaction study, I quizzed the team about what do you think most matters to customers? And I heard things like about they want to be able to have pricing flexibility, or they want to really be educated on tax benefits, or they want to know about investing their dollars. And so we did the study. We said the number one thing customers want to know is how to log into the website. Oh, my goodness. Is <laughs> <laughs> that basic? Because they would log in twice a year. And if they forgot their password, now this was 12 years ago, so we didn't have LastPass or anything then. If you forgot your password, it would ask you, say, great, we can reset your password. Can you please give me the 14-digit number you received when you first opened your account? There's no way they remember that. Right, right. And no. <laughs> so that would lead then to a call. The employees never thought about that because they logged into the account every day. They had their passwords memorized because they used it every day. And there was no understanding of what it's like to be an actual customer. Right. So I started bringing our teams out to meet with clients. So a client would be an employer, customer would be their employees, so they could learn more about what it's like to be our customers. And that's what really got me the bug into customer experience. That's really cool. And is those kind of insights what got you to thinking about starting hard of the customer? Well, that and I got fired a lot. Nice. So uh, I'm not a good employee. <laughs> the entrepreneurial story. I love it. That is what I'm here to learn about. <laughs> <laughs> I was a really bad corporate employee. I remember at Best Buy, my boss said, Jim, you seem to feel very empowered. You said, I've got the heart of the customer. <laughs> yeah, apparently empowered is not always a good thing. At that big health insurance organization, our VP of sales would pull me in his office more than once and say, Jim, you create a lot of noise. Again, that was not a good thing. I love that you took that and you ran with it rather than changing your own personality, though. A lot of people would just be like, you know, okay, fine. I'll stop talking out about it, not do anything about it. But you actually went out and did something entrepreneurial about it. So good for you. Well, thanks. <laughs> I, I was with a research company. One of our clients said, we'd like a journey map. Like, oh, what's a journey map? I didn't know what it was at the time. Yeah. And they said, here's a PowerPoint slide with some bubbles on it. Use that. And I got offended. I thought, you know, that, that's stupid. You can't take the voice of the customer, old customer experience, and represent it on a PowerPoint slide with bubbles. Okay, that was my inside voice. My outside voice was, okay, yes, I'll get right on it. <laughs> but I, I was so offended. I had a blog at that time. I actually started a blog. was with the health insurance organization. And I spent about a month or two thinking about how would I do a journey map? And I put together an example of what it might look like. And it went viral. A few months later, I was flipped to sales. And a few months after that, I was fired because I didn't sell anything. You know, who saw that coming? So <laughs> fired so again. But I was found I was number one on Google for journey mapping. Wait, so what was the viral aspect about this map? Like what was so different than the bubbles on the presentation, for example? Well, it was very rich and graphical. I know our listeners can't see it, but I have a bunch of journey maps behind me. And they're highly graphical, mm -hmm. very colorful, designed to immerse the reader. They're 11 by 17. We usually blow them up on a wall for our clients. And they're highly visual, more so than you can do in any PowerPoint. So that was a design to put out there. That's what the top 10 requirements of doing a customer-focused journey map. And it, it appeared that the marketplace really liked this rethinking of what a journey map could be. And it's been enough that I haven't been fired for the nine years I had the company. So it seems to be going well. We are on the ups here. That's right. <laughs> we think you found your passion. <laughs> yeah. Well, that passion is so critical. 100%. And so um, 
Nicole on my team came to me one day and said, we should write a book. I said, no, that's a horrible idea. Let's not do that. And she kept that. And finally, six months later, I came back and said, okay, let's write this book. And that's what led to the first book, which is how hard is it to be your customer using journey mapping to drive customer-focused change. And that's where we bring out a lot of our findings in the journey mapping side. I'm curious, just as a side note or a quick question, because you're talking about journey mapping, when uh, customers come to you asking about journey mapping, is there a best stage that you recommend a company thinking about this? Or do you think that that applies to literally any point, whether they're just starting up or they're growing or they're scaling or whatever they're trying to figure out? Is there a perfect stage for that? We actually researched that because I had the same question. We did a survey of 200 companies, 220 actually, to understand what separates those, what we call change makers versus the hopeful. Now, hopeful might be doing a lot of good work and they hope it matters to the business, but they can't actually show a direct line between their work and retention, upsell, cross-sell. Mm, okay. They hope it matters. The change makers can draw a direct line. They can show that when they do their work, it creates what we call a customer experience loyalty flywheel. They make changes to the experience that customers become more emotionally engaged. They then buy more, stay longer, which frees up money to do it again. Everybody believes in that flywheel. Whether you're hopeful, everybody believes that if you treat customers right, they like you better, they come back more. But the change makers can actually do the math and they can show it. So getting back to your question, one of the things that differentiated a change maker from a hopeful was that the change maker started by looking at the end-to-end -end experience. So the hopefuls would choose an area to map and hope that was the right area. But the change makers would first look at the broad experience from awareness through purchase through what's usually the most important time, which is that moment right after the first purchase, the onboarding, on through increasing hopeful usage, renewal. They would look first at the end-to-end -end experience to find out where the challenges were. And then they also did 50% more journey mapping. They would come back and do a deep dive on what that showed to be the biggest issue. So they got the holistic view versus just trying one thing and seeing just what would happen. Exactly. Now, a lot of companies ignore that advice because they want to be able to show impact right away, but there's the risk that they're missing out. Right. Now, if there was an area that you had to go narrow, where I see the most impact is that onboarding a new customer. The first time they visit your store, the first time they come to your website, the first purchase, that's your opportunity to create a customer for life or to make it just a transactional relationship that never continues. And I wonder if companies think about that more from the pre-sales process to the post-sales process, meaning they think if they can get everything right before the sale happens, then they're good to go for life with the customer. But there must be a little gap happening in terms of that post-sales process in order for you to see that gap wide enough that you need to work on that. Because I feel like a lot of companies are in the view that once you secure the client, you're fine. But then once you secure the client, what happens after that process if you leave them high and dry in a sense? What the heck do they do at that point? Because it's just like, right. what's the point at that point? But that's really interesting that you say that because I'm curious to know that with the customer experience landscape, do you think companies are getting it right these days? Or do you think that there's a lot of change that needs to happen? Oh, there definitely needs to be change on there. We find that most organizations doing customer experience read an article and say, oh, we should do customer experience. Oh, let's measure the net promoter score because that's popular. Great. We have a customer experience program. Go. <laughs> Not so fast. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> and when we looked at the change makers versus the hopefuls, we found four things they do differently. One is that they actually connect the customer experience to the business problem of retention. 
upsell, cross-sell. So they show that when the customer experience gets better, usually measured through surveys, that that matters. I was talking with a health insurance organization and they measure net promoter score. And I asked them, does it matter? So, well, what do you mean? Well, do your members that give you a higher score, do they stay longer? I don't know. I would want to know that. And so I said, well, okay, so why do you measure? Well, we give bonuses on it. So let me review this. You have a survey score. You don't know if it matters to your business, but you bonus people based on the results. Do you see any issues here? Right? Do you see the gaping hole in that? <laughs> so the change makers would first say, okay, they wouldn't necessarily start with that promoter. They would say, okay, we want to understand our customers. Let's go talk to them first. Now let's determine what is the best way to measure that. Mm-hmm. And that moves into the second change. The second thing is different is that change makers will actually measure emotions, trust, confidence. In fact, fidelity. So I, I put this in my book. The book was almost out. I thought it had something new. Nobody else in the world had. And then Gene and our team showed me that fidelity also measures emotions. <laughs> I wish it come out after the book so I could claim credit for it. Yeah. I have no credit for fidelity <laughs> doing this. But if you call in for an issue, their survey asks about eight different emotions. And I would guarantee they have linked those emotions to the behaviors they care about. For example, putting more money in your fidelity account, staying with them longer, and interacting more often. So measuring emotions is something that I've only found, I think, eight companies that do it, but it's usually the best predictor of the behaviors we care about. For example, retention. It's interesting you say that because honestly, the first time that you said measuring emotions, and it sounds silly to say, but it seems almost counterintuitive because you think emotions are a very abstract and touchy-feely thing, but then it's like, how do you measure that with data? So I feel it honestly would be hard for companies to figure out If you told them, go measure the emotions, they're probably thinking to themselves, like, how on earth do we start doing that? Or what's like the first step to doing something like that? Because I can understand now that you've explained the entire context around it and the why behind it. But in the first moment of you saying that, I was actually thinking to myself, like, how do you measure emotions? Because I feel like it's easier said than done. Maybe you agree, maybe disagree, but maybe that's the insight in all of it. So we have a proprietary approach, of course, but it's not that complicated, really. So I'm about to give away the proprietary approach. I guess Woo-hoo. so much more proprietary. <laughs> People are lucky to be listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the first thing you do is you decide which of your customers are your most loyal versus least loyal. So where are the customers that are only using you, for example, one product line versus more? If you're a restaurant that are only coming to you once a month versus three times a month, figure out the behavior. That's the third action of a change maker is understand behavior, not sentiment. So which customer is behaving the way you want and which customer is behaving in ways that maybe you don't want, whether that's a just a rare visit, whether it's a restaurant or website, whether that's only using you for your less expensive products. And so separate. So get a list of your best clients and your not so best clients and then ask them about emotions. So we do qualitative research first. We understand what are the common emotions. Compassion International is a client of ours that measures emotions. Dow, the chemical company, is another client of ours that measures emotions. Their emotions are different. Right. You have different emotions if you are donating money to save a child in Africa from poverty versus if you're ordering chemicals. But in both situations, the emotions matter. And so you ask a survey question to say, what emotions are you feeling working with us? And since you've tying that then, you see which emotions your best customers have, what are the emotions your less best customers have? And now, how do we start designing for the emotions we want? I got a big clue on this by Roxy Strominger. 
She is with UKG. They're a software company, does payroll, benefits, so on. And her top promotion is confidence. And she can show that when customers are confident, they retain longer, they buy more products, they're less expensive to serve. All these good outcomes come. We worked with a different software company. I'm not going to mention their name. We looked at confidence as well. And confidence is very predictive of likelihood to buy more. But there's also this emotion of exhausted. And I don't know if your viewers have ever been involved in implementing software. If it goes badly, exhaustion is an outcome. Yeah, for sure. Been there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I can feel that on a very relatable level. And I'll put money that that company who creates exhaustion, you don't want to work with them ever again. Mm -mm. So we measure that. And what we found is that when customers say they're exhausted, they don't ever want to buy any more products in this company. And that leads you then to design your experience differently because if they're exhausted, you should really give more staff to fix that problem so it doesn't continue. Wow. There's so many thoughts in my head right now. (laughs) And the reason is because I haven't really thought about it from the emotion point of view. But now I realize, because if you think of the root of every customer problem, emotion is at the root of all of that. Because actually, my family and I were talking about this yesterday of how my family and another one of our family friends, we both order food from the same food service platform. And we were talking about the different reasons as to why. So one family is just a single person ordering for herself, and it's a convenience factor. We were ordering because we cook all the time. And we switch between family members, but sometimes we are bored of that. We cook the same things. We get bored. We're like, let's try something new, whatever. But the emotion is very, very different between the two of us ordering because that person who's the single person ordering for herself, when the food service person said, oh, I'm actually stopping for the month of January, she was really sad and she was actually very upset about it. Because she actually had the feeling of wanting to be supported. She was happy when she ordered because it's not just about the food, but it was about the emotion that she got from ordering the food or the actual product itself, the resounding feelings that came after that. And for us, it was very much more a convenient aspect. So thinking about it from the emotion point of view is so interesting because you can really dig deep into the why of the customer versus just seeing, oh, you have one family that orders sometimes here and there, and you have one other person who orders every single week time and time again. Exactly. The one ordering from convenience can easily be swayed to somebody else by a bit better price, a simpler ordering process. But if they're feeling supported and maybe inspired by the meal choices, yeah, that's a customer that's really hard for a competitor to pull away. And so that's what surprises me that nobody measures. And by nobody, I mean, I only know of eight companies that actually measure this. That's crazy. And it does take a disciplined process to determine what the emotions are. You can't just choose emotions and go with it. You need to start with what emotions are creating today and then start designing against that. So in this case, let's say that inspiration is the top outcome. If that's the case, then imagine how you would design the experience differently than if the top outcome was it's easy. Yeah. For sure. Communicate differently. You would probably, if it's easy, you don't want to put in risky, new, spicy meals. Yeah. Because they may not like them and throw them out. But if the goal is to be inspired, well, now we can bring in different cuisines. We do things differently just to amp up that inspiration. It could also lead to different products where you could say, let's measure. And if we find that some of the customers are all about convenience, then great. Let's give them this product line that's very consistent. 
Whereas we find this other customer set who is, again, they live for the inspiration. Well, now let's play a little bit wacky and we can make mistakes with that customer. They'll forgive us because they have that emotional connection. No, I think that's so important. But speaking of which, in terms of your efforts and your intentions that you do with your consulting work, obviously you've had a lot of great experience building that and being able to know what to do in that. So tell me more about your time with Best Buy and the engagements and the initiatives that you led there to lead to building all this experience about customer journeys and mapping and all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah. So I had the interesting role that if you had a bad idea and a lot of money, I would test your bad idea and spend your money to figure (laughs) out what was good or bad about it and what could we use to scale. And my success rate was pretty much, it wasn't zero, but it was a number very close to zero. (laughs) But that was deliberate. I was doing tests to try to figure out, you know, shots for the home run to see what would work. And so, for example, I built a full-size family room, kitchen, and home office in three stores. What? Really? So we could test out. Yeah, it's cool. At Best Buy. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. And of course, those ideas didn't scale, but components of them did. And that was the design there. This is back mid, early to mid 2000s. And so before the iPad came out, I built a 32-inch iPad you could use to choose GPSs. Wow. So you wouldn't need an associate, but you could then you know play with it and say, okay, I want these features all touchscreen to help you get to deciding the right GPS without having to talk to an associate. Again, the idea didn't scale as it was, but some of that learning went into the website. And so it was very much about learning. And that's really where I started learning more about emotions. You know, when we built, for example, the family room, the men couldn't care less. I mean, I'm, I'm realizing I'm stereotyping here, but that's where research shows. The men want to go to the big wall of TVs. <laughs> but the female shoppers typically liked it a lot. They'd ask a lot of questions like, well, I don't see the cables. Where are they? I noticed the same music playing in three rooms. Why is that? And they're able to have a really good conversation with it about more inspiration. And then if it was a couple, they would often bring the husband around and say, okay, let's learn more about this. But coming back to the fourth action of a change maker, what was missing was change management. Because the male shopper, yeah, didn't really care much about it. The female shopper loved it a lot. Who hated it were the merchants, those responsible for putting products in Best Buy stores, because they had to give up a 12 by 12 space, three of them in a store where they couldn't put any products. Ah, I see. And because nobody thought about the change management aspect, nobody engaged the merchants to say, this is why it's in your interest to do it. They fought it tooth and nail and killed it. What? So they were thinking about the square footage value versus the actual customer journey. Right. So they are paid on pushing products, getting more products to the store. And that's what they cared about. And it was possible to create a conversation with them that's saying, by giving up this space, you're going to actually sell more because you're creating the inspiration to cause customers to buy higher end products and buy more products. But that conversation was never had. And all they looked at was all the missing square footage and what would happen if that idea scaled. Yeah. Because I was going to say, wouldn't you say that that's almost like the fundamental model of IKEA, where you're immersed in the entire experience and it's actually all about the staging and things like that, because you can see yourself picturing the lamp on the table. The Actually, everything in my office is IKEA now that I speak of it. And I saw a lot of it from the showroom. The lamp that I'm using, the desk, everything, like the little holders for my pens and stuff like that. But it was very much about the experience because you know the joke that people make that you go into Ikea looking for low prices and the deals and this and that, but then you come out spending like two times more than you ever expected. Yeah. Wouldn't that be from 
the entire customer journey and them getting it right versus thinking about the square footage and just stacking the entire storage units with product and just selling it to people? Well, exactly, exactly. And you know, in customer experience, there's a lot of belief about the effortless experience. We should just make it really easy. Well, IKEA shows that that's not necessarily the right approach. You know, IKEA is not at all easy, but it is inspirational. They deliberately designed that store, so it's hard to get through there quickly. If you just want to go look at the mattresses and leave, good luck. Yeah, not going to happen. This is why I plan day trips to IKEA. And oh, yeah. I go for the meatballs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, let's go solstice night and eat the meatballs. That's what we used to do when we lived closer to one. And actually, see, the way that we're talking about IKEA, we didn't even mention needing a new desk or needing a new something. We're actually just talking about the experience of meatballs at a furniture store. And the meatballs will bring people in. And while they're there, they will buy more. And it's a great way. But again, I don't know if their meatballs taste any better than anybody else's. Oh, 100%. We have no confirmation about that. <laughs> it's the experience that brings the taste. <laughs> yes, exactly. It brings people in. They get inspired. They get the meatballs, which are good. No question about it. But they get a whole experience. And again, coming back to it's inspiration. I'm also curious, just on the topic of what you were talking about at Best Buy, like obviously Best Buy is a huge company. It's a mm -hmm. multinational organization. But the fact is, how did you bring that aspect of being such a large company and bring it to speaking to the customer on the individual level? So you tried these experiments, the ones where you thought it might not work and all those learnings and you scaled that. But how did they take that and be able to speak to customers on such an individual level? Because you did mention before that you think that Best Buy is a customer-obsessed organization. So how do they do that on such a big scale? First of all, in hiring. It's hard to hire. And again, I haven't been there for 15 years. But hiring the right people with the curiosity, great training. Again, my knowledge is dated, but at least at that time, Best Buy invested a lot into training their associates to getting them to understand the different needs. Now, at that point, we had this radical approach called customer centricity. And we created, I think it was five personas. I know, but in 2003, <laughs> when it began, that was radical. That was new. And we created different personas that helped the employees understand the different needs. So, for example, Buzz was a gamer. And Buzz cared about the coolest stuff, the latest technology, which led to specific value props and training over how to talk with a Buzz, which was different than a Barry. Barry was stereotypically a corporate vice president wanted higher-end products than Buzz did, more of sense of aesthetics than Buzz. We had Jill. Jill, who was often the decision-maker for the family, the one that held the purse strings. And so when Barry wanted something, Jill had to agree to it. And that was new learning for us about the importance of the dual decision-making. So by understanding who the customers were, and again, that was five segments of customers that represented different types of buyers that had different needs. And then the other thing that Best Buy did really well, this is going to sound counterintuitive, they trained the associates on the financial drivers of profitability. I've not seen that done before, but what that enabled is by when you combine the personalization around the different segments, understanding their needs, with the financial acumen of understanding how that impacts store profitability, now you're starting to close the loop. So I can see that when I behave this way, when I spend more time understanding needs, the store does better. Mm, so you just create that direct link in their mind so that they're always aware of it. Exactly. And I don't find many organizations do that about helping their employees understand 
how to connect what they're doing specifically with customers. It's very easy to tell a retail associate how they help the customer experience. That's not hard at all. A little bit harder for a finance person, but they connect that there. And then to the financials of how we get stronger. Probably because I think those are two separate things. Exactly. Yeah. But that's what the change makers do is they, first of all, expose our employees to understand how they impact the customer experience. Again, that change management we talk about. And then they connect that customer experience to the success of the company. That's back to action one, connected to financials. That's where the flywheel comes from, is connecting everything together. Is the flywheel the methodology that you use at your consulting firm? We do, yes. So we start out by understanding how does customer experience create better financial outcomes? That right there is new for most companies. They've not drawn that connection. Clearly, retention is part of it for most organizations, But there are some that retention isn't the big deal. For example, there are some where it's just there aren't a lot of alternatives. Yeah. But also upsell, cross-sell. And so what you look at is you look at when the experience gets better, to make sure we're measuring the right thing on the customer experience, that customers should want to buy more, stay longer, as well as interact in ways that are less expensive to serve. Nobody wants to call your contact center twice. And so if you can create better outcomes to customers, they call less often. There are always going to be times to call. But what we found, for example, in confidence, when customers are confident, they'll still call your contact center for a novel situation. But if it's something they've seen before, they're far more likely to move to self-service. You're not pushing them to self-service. You're creating an outcome where they want to self-serve because they're more confident. Uh, We find that they're frustrated. First of all, they're going to call every time. But worse, if they're frustrated or annoyed is another emotion, after they hang up, they'll call back again to talk to a different associate to see if they get the same answer. That's expensive for you. That's horrible for the customer. If they get a different answer the second time, oh, that's really bad. Game over. (laughs) Exactly. But that's, again, coming back to measuring the emotion is that you know that if they're annoyed or frustrated, then they're likely to have bad behaviors for you and them. Yeah. And so how can you get ahead of that reach out to them and say, you don't say, hey, I noticed you're annoyed with us. But you do say, I noticed we've had some challenges. How can we help you? One of the other parts of this, so Sam Wegman is with Unibar, a distributor, and she spoke at a conference last year. And she talked about a problem many companies have is that 90% of your customers won't fill out a survey, which means that most companies don't pay attention to that 90% because they don't have a survey to look at. What she did, and we do this with other companies as well, is she looked at the data and said, okay, when we see customers give us a low survey score, they have these behaviors, like they have an issue that's been ongoing for a while, or you know, we haven't gotten them products, products are back order, whatever that is. They look at that and say, okay, only 5 to 10% of our customers are filling in the surveys, but every customer speaks to us from their behavior. So let's look at our operational behavioral data and use that to see who's likely unhappy with us. And let's not wait for them to fill out a survey because they may never do that. Let's proactively reach out and see what's going on and see if we can't help them. So I guess putting the more unconventional lens on things versus just waiting for a survey to tell you what you wanted to hear. Exactly. If you can see that people are logging into your website regularly and never buying, well, there's something wrong there. Yeah. See what it is. Let's find out. Let's look at their behavior because they're speaking to you. They're speaking that they like your concept, but they're not accomplishing their goal. Let's figure out why. Maybe that customer represents hundreds or thousands of others. Right. Let's learn from that. And so when you deploy these kind of strategies with your clients, what do you advise 
on how to measure the retention outcomes out of that? Or how do you measure the success of all these things that you're working on? Because I imagine there's multiple things to be working on. There's a lot of change that goes on. You being a change maker for them to become a change maker. Everyone's becoming a change maker. I'm sure clients would come to you and say, like, what do we expect in the terms of measuring the retention out of this? How do you go about something like that? Well, we don't start with the survey score which is where most are when they look at customer experience. We start with net revenue retention. Now, net revenue retention doesn't work for every organization. Those not familiar with net revenue retention, if last year you had 100 customers that each spent $100, that's $10,000 in revenue. Look at just those 100 customers. How much did they spend? So if 5% left you, then your net revenue retention is 95% if they all spent 100 sell. If you kept all 100 and they upped their purchasing by 10%, then your net revenue retention is 110%. It gets a little bit more involved, but it's not really hard math. And we start with that. We say our goal is not to improve a survey score. Our goal is to increase net revenue retention. I like the idea of revenue retention because that also changes the way that you look at what you're doing and the strategy that you deploy as well. And it also helps, let's say, for example, you're talking to a retailer and a customer hasn't visited you for three months. Does that mean they left? Well, not necessarily. It depends. You know, if it's Target, probably yes. If it's Best Buy, maybe not. Yeah, But if you look at the revenue retention, that's what really matters. So if they came visit you and never bought, that's bad. If they visited you once and bought more, that's good. And so it helps you get to what really matters to the company, which is do customers want to buy more from us? And you can do that on the B2B and the B2C side, meaning any customer doesn't really matter. Pretty much. Yeah. Again, there's some like health insurance where it's about retention because you're probably not going to say, hey, I like my health insurance so much. I want to buy a second policy. Probably not, (laughs) but in most industries, it works pretty well. Okay, so let's jump into the lightning round. Let's get to it. First question, what's the biggest challenge facing companies and customer experience right now? They think it's a department. It's a survey question, but out there, and so it's off of the side, it creates its own silo. Great organizations know that everybody's responsible for customer experience. They build in the change management, help everybody have a role. It's like you had that answer ready to go. It's like you wrote a book about it or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Crazy concept. Well, you took lightning round and you did it exceptionally. So next question. <laughs> what is the best book about customer experience or marketing in general that you would recommend to any listener? I'm cheating a little bit. It's more about behavior by psychology, but it's Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow about how people actually think and that we all make emotional decisions first and then rationalize it later. Excellent. Great book. I plus one that because that one had me thinking about marketing and customer experience in a whole different way. Great. Who would you like to see a biopic about in the marketing world? Not who anybody's heard of. Her name is Lori Englert. She was the VP of customer experience for Legrand AV. She's now just at the first of the month was promoted to the CMO of Legrand North America. And the reason I would want her is because she started out as a marketer, but had such a passion for customers. She spoke at our conference last year about how she has changed the culture so that literally everybody we talked to referenced having talked to a client in the last week or two. It was amazing how she has changed the culture so that now if you bring an idea to the president, he says, how many customers have you talked to? Well, not. Well, then get out of here. Come back after you talk to customers. Love that. She learned the hard way when she came out with this brand new idea that she thought it was fantastic and nobody used it. So she went out and started to talk to customers why, and they shared that why they didn't like the product. And she says, well, if I had done that first, I could have saved a whole lot of trouble. And so she's created this culture of design thinking and talking with customers 
And when we had a chance to interview their employees as part of the book, they just blew me away about how customer-centric they were. Maybe she'll hear this podcast and she'll do it. <laughs> I, I will probably be sending it over to her. But yes, uh, she's amazing. Well, that would be fantastic. Okay, so let's end on the question that we ask every single guest on the show. And probably my favorite question of the entire thing, which is, is there a piece of marketing or life advice that someone shared with you once that has always stayed with you? I mentioned Roxy Strominger earlier. She is the VP of Customer Experience Strategy at UKG. Again, a software company does software for payroll, benefits, other HR. And when I wanted to understand what great customer experience leaders do, I spent two days with her. And she really said, start with understanding your customer. Talk to them, learn more about them, which of course, I love that advice. But she said, then from there, understand their emotions, quantify them, understand what they are, and then connect those emotions to what's going on in your business. That they're all connected from understanding customers, you help to understand more what their emotions are, you measure the emotions, and you'll find that they predict what you're trying to understand in your business. And she helped me understand this comprehensive view of that customer experience is not something on the side, but in great organizations, it's central to how you operate. And did you learn that before or during founding the consulting firm? And you know, parts of it before, obviously talking to customers are always done. I knew emotions mattered, it's always been part of our journey maps, yeah. but I never thought about measuring them until she challenged them for that. I also, right after that, I spent two days at Dow and they measure enjoyability, which blew me away. Like really enjoyability working with a chemical company. <laughs> but again, they can show if you say it's enjoyable to work with Dow, you have a different behavior. So yeah, it really brought all these ideas together into one. Well, thank you so much for that. I've said it multiple times in the show that the interesting thing about retention and customer experience is the fact that there's so many different lenses to it. There's so many different views, approaches, strategies, all this fun stuff. And that's why I enjoy the podcast so much because you get to hear really interesting takes on it. And this was definitely one of them. So thank you so much for that. And it was really great to have you on the show. Thanks, Lauren. I had a lot of fun. I can't always say that from a podcast. This was a lot of fun. Woohoo! We like to have fun here. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed the conversation. That's awesome. That's the emotion I try to invoke. So hopefully I did that. <laughs> 100%. Retain the Customer Retention Podcast is brought to you by Gameball. To find out how you can turn visitors and occasional buyers into loyal, lifetime customers, head to gameball.co. Make sure to subscribe to Retain the Customer Retention Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time.